0: I really like Docketwise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, Docketwise provides a comprehensive group of case management features including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about Docketwise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Hello, everybody. Hope you caught the special episode that dropped on Saturday with KKTP partner, John Pratt. We touched on Iran-Contra, the Nicaraguan Civil War, and even an incident where John's briefcase was blown up, at Ira Kurzban's office, not in war-torn Central America, surprisingly. Also, we dive deep into EB-5 visas and the Regional Center Program, so if you're interested in all that, check it out. On to the cases four, and they're interesting as ever, and they're pretty meaty. Enjoy. Starting off, we have the aptly named case titled Islam v. DHS, published by the 11th Circuit on May 20th, 2021. Although the case arises in district court, this is a monster of a decision about the Immigration Inadmissibility Provision for being a member of a terrorist organization, so it's very applicable to removal defense. At the onset, and while the terrorism bars are certainly serious, it's important to recognize that the INA's terrorism provisions have been greatly expanded over the years to include a lot more organizations, leading to some pretty hard-to-understand results, as the Fifth Circuit's Mirza decision last week shows. And although the INA now treats membership or material support of all terrorist organizations similarly, not all terrorist organizations are created equally. Tier 1 terrorist organizations are those designated by the Secretary of State. Think Al-Qaeda, that kind of stuff. Tier 2 terrorist organizations are those designated, quote, by the Secretary of State in consultation with or upon the request of the Attorney General or the Secretary of Homeland Security, end quote. Quite honestly, I'm not really sure what those are or how they differ from the first tier. But these immigration decisions are almost always about tier three organizations, which are flat out undesignated. And so, quote, whether an entity qualifies as a tier three terrorist organization is determined on a case by case basis, end quote. Mr. Islam is from Bangladesh and like Mr. Mirza last week, he obtained asylum in the U.S. based on his well-founded fear of persecution by the Bangladeshi government due to his membership in the Bangladesh Nationalist Party, or BNP. But when he then tried to adjust status before USCIS under the Special Asylum Adjustment of Status provision, he was deemed inadmissible under INA Section 212A3B and therefore he was deemed ineligible to adjust status due to his membership in that same BNP organization and his supporting activities, because USCIS deemed the BNP a Tier 3 terrorist organization. Is it? That's what this decision is largely about. The BNP is one of the two largest political parties in all of Bangladesh, kind of like the Republican Party in the U.S., so to call it a terrorist organization or a terrorist supporting entity is no small thing. Both the BNP and its rival, the Awami League, or AL, have at times resorted to political violence in Bangladesh over the years. Mr. Islam has been part of the BNP since 1995. He was even the publicity secretary for his local BNP chapter, He was beaten by AL members with hockey sticks in 2011, and then he had his tea house blown up with Molotov cocktails. And when he reported the attack, the AL members threatened to kill him. Mr. Islam obtained asylum in immigration court for this reason, and DHS never asserted the terrorism bar in those proceedings, which of course would have prevented him from obtaining asylum if an immigration judge had held that it applied but USCIS asserted the terrorism bar when he had filed to adjust status later. Mr. Islam sued USCIS, a district court upheld that finding, and here, so did the 11th Circuit. First, the 11th Circuit rejected Mr. Islam's very smart argument that the judicial concept of issue preclusion, also known as collateral estoppel, Barred USCIS from making the terrorism inadmissibility finding because, by granting him asylum in the first place, the IJ necessarily found that the bar did not apply before. And the 11th Circuit did hold, possibly for the first time ever in the circuit, that, quote, a final decision by an immigration judge has a preclusive effect on future litigation and agency decisions, end quote. So that's something. But for issue preclusion to actually apply, the case must satisfy four criteria, and here, the 11th Circuit held that whether Mr. Islam was a member of a Tier 3 terrorist organization hadn't been, quote, actually litigated, end quote, in the removal proceedings, meaning that the case failed the second issue preclusion requirement. To reach that holding, the 11th Circuit followed a very similar holding from the 9th Circuit, and essentially held that because DHS dropped the ball in immigration court, And even though Mr. Islam fully disclosed his membership in the BNP during those proceedings, he wasn't really asked about it, including on cross-examination. And so it wasn't actually litigated. Tear out my heart, Judge Jordan. So let's get a bit to the substance, then. A Tier 3 terrorist organization is, quote, an organization that is a group of two or more individuals, whether organized or not, which engages in, or has a subgroup which engages in, certain activities, including terrorist activity, end quote. The 11th Circuit first upheld the constitutionality of the Tier 3 terrorist organization in admissibility provision, or deemed such arguments waived by Mr. Islam, holding that, quote, an organization engages in terrorist activity for the purposes of the Tier 3 statute when its members perpetrate terrorist activity and its leadership authorizes such conduct expressly or tacitly, end quote. Put another way, quote, there must be evidence of authorization from party leaders, end quote. So that's also not an awful standard. At least for the bar to apply, there must be a connection to leadership, rather than simply the actions of rogue members. Applying that standard to the BNP, however, the court held that the political party met the definition of a Tier 3 terrorist organization, having engaged in covered violent activities since the mid-90s. The 11th Circuit held that, quote, the BNP leadership had consistently and systematically failed to curtail such activity, end quote, and that a, quote, person of common intelligence would have been on fair notice that the BNP could meet the definition of a terror-three terrorist organization, end quote. Mr. Islam could have avoided the inadmissibility finding if he had shown under the statute that he, quote, did not know and should not reasonably have known that the organization was a terrorist organization, end quote, but he didn't so show so Mr. Islam cannot adjust status, and he'll probably lose his asylum status as well. A bit more, if you will indulge me. So, not a great decision for non-citizens, but the terrorism cases rarely are. Judge Jordan does, however, give us some language to work with. For example, in case there was any doubt, it's, quote, "...holding does not mean that an organization qualifies as a Tier 3 terrorist organization if it fails to prevent one or a few terrorist acts by its members," end quote. Remember that. But does this decision mean that the Awami League is also a Tier 3 terrorist organization? I.e. that both of Bangladesh's main political parties are terrorist organizations? as would be the majority of the country's 163 million people who are either members of those organizations or support them? Remember how low the material support bar is, and that it lacks a duress exception, particularly in the Eleventh Circuit, as discussed in hincapies of the U.S. Attorney General, in episode 25 of the podcast. Sounds like there are serious reasons for believing that such a broad interpretation of the statute would, if implemented, allow Congress to unconstitutionally infringe upon the executive branch's broad foreign policy authority. For the record, the 11th does make clear that the Tier 3 inquiry requires a case-by-case analysis, but it also equates actions by the BNP to those by the AL numerous times in the decision. Goodbye Bangladeshi immigration. And what about someone from, say, Ireland, who votes for and joined the IRA's successor political party? to name just one non-South Asia example. For what it's worth, though, excellent case for anti-BNP asylum claims, so long as the political party actually belonged to by your client doesn't also run into the terrorism bar. After all, Bangladeshis who fear the BNP now don't just fear a political party, they fear a tier 3 terrorist organization. To end on a high note, honestly, the fact that this decision made its way up to the 11th Circuit from the Southern District of Florida is a big win in and of itself. There's a line of unpublished district court decisions out there that stand for the proposition that federal courts lack jurisdiction to review USCIS adjustment of status denials because, in essence, non-citizens have another avenue available to them to have their claims heard, removal proceedings, if DHS decides to initiate them. The fact that this case made it to the 11th on direct appeal from the District Court is citable jurisdictionally. And that is Islam v. DHS. Next is Figueroa v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on May 19, 2021. This case is about asylum and withholding of removal. And it also touches on the Fugitive Disentitlement Doctrine. Mr. Figueroa is from Honduras, and he entered the U.S. unlawfully in 2010. He was deemed to have a credible fear because his father, uncle, and cousins were killed by gang members, and he was placed in removal proceedings. But his application was denied, he waived appeal, and he was removed to Honduras. He remained there for a year, and re-entered unlawfully in 2012. DHS caught up with him in 2017 and reinstated that final order of removal. However, DHS found that he had a reasonable fear of persecution based on new details of the gang violence against his family, and he was therefore placed in withholding-only proceedings. In withholding-only proceedings, he testified to the gang having done terrible things to his family in addition to the initial murders, including raping his sister and killing his dog since he re-entered the U.S. in 2012. The IJ found Mr. Figueroa credible, but denied their relief and protection. The BIA affirmed. So as we all know, non-citizens can technically be removed after the BIA denies their case, unless the circuit court grants a stay of removal. Here, the Third Circuit denied Mr. Figueroa's stay request, but when ICE told Mr. Figueroa's bond obligor to produce him for removal pending petition for review, Mr. Figueroa was not produced. Oil submitted one piece of evidence to the Third Circuit to show this—a document showing the request upon Mr. Figueroa's bond obligator. Based on that, Oil moved the Third Circuit to dismiss the petition for review based on the fugitive disentitlement doctrine, something I've never heard of before. Under the doctrine, if Mr. Figueroa is deemed fugitive, the Third Circuit can, in its discretion, dismiss the petition for review. While the doctrine originates in criminal cases, a bunch of circuits have applied it in the immigration context. But here, oil just didn't produce enough evidence that Mr. Figueroa actually absconded for the Third Circuit to exercise its discretionary authority. The single bond breach form doesn't cut it. Caution though proof that the demand had been made on Mr. Figueroa himself likely would have, and of course, us immigration attorneys cannot counsel our clients to abscond. One hurdle cleared, but not the second. The Third Circuit upheld the BIA's denial of the withholding and Convention Against Torture claims. The Third Circuit did so despite the fact that the BIA had actually held that Mr. Figueroa had established that he would more likely than not be persecuted or tortured in Honduras on account of a protected ground, membership in his father's family. But both the BIA and the Third Circuit held that Mr. Figueroa didn't fear harm from the entities in this case, the Mara 18 International Criminal Organization, that the Honduran government wasn't unable or unwilling to control. In so finding, the Third Circuit held that the unable or unwilling to control standard required for asylum and withholding is the same as the, quote, complete helplessness, quote, standard employed by the various attorneys general in matters of AB. If, as the acting attorney general said in matter of AB the Second, and the Third Circuit is saying here, the standards are exactly the same, I'm not sure why we're using this new complete helplessness semantic. But so be it. According to the Third Circuit, both standards require that the quote government must be complicit to some degree in the harmful conduct of non-governmental actors through either act or omission, end quote. The standard is satisfied if the government is unable to control the private actors, unwilling to do so, or condones or is completely helpless to prevent the private actors' conduct. Put another way in, quote, harmonizing the two standards, when the government is unable to control private actors with respect to a specific potential victim, it demonstrates a complete helplessness to protect that victim from those actors, end quote. The court goes on to explain why for many pages, but as I read the decision, and as I said with matter of A.B. the second a couple of months ago, the complete helplessness standard appears to be the same as the old and well-worn, unable or unwilling to control standard. Got it. Under all the tests, Mr. Figueroa failed. In essence, the Third Circuit affirmed the board's finding that the Honduran government has taken, quote, significant steps to combat gang violence, end quote, and that, quote, the lack of success in prosecuting the gang members for their past violent acts could be due to the vagueness and deficiencies in the police reports that Mr. Figueroa and his family filed, not the government's condemnation of the gang's harmful acts or its complete helplessness to protect him, quote. The Third Circuit also upheld the Convention Against Torture denial. Relying on its deferential standard of review, the court stated that, quote, while every predictive judgment is subject to second-guessing, especially when it involves the behavior of foreign governmental actors, the BIA's conclusion is not one that a reasonable adjudicator would be compelled to reject, end quote. And that's about it. But I've got a good quote for you. Something to remember. IJs and the BIA often look to generalized country condition evidence or larger state legislation to hold that indeed a government is able and willing to control private actors. But here, the Third Circuit is reminding that, quote, the inability or unwillingness to control a violent group becomes relevant only in the context of a specific individual, the applicant. Accordingly, the test evaluates the government's ability and willingness to control private actors not at a general level, but rather with respect to the specific applicant seeking relief, end quote. Sounds good to me. And that is Figueroa, the Attorney General of the U.S. Next is Maniere v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on May 20th, 2021. This case is largely about aggravated felonies and pretty non-friendly to non-citizens. Mr. Manier entered the United States in lawful H-1B status. In 2017, he pled guilty to conspiracy to commit money laundering in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1956-H, and he was ordered to pay $26 million in restitution. DHS initiated removal proceedings and charged Mr. Manier as removable as a non-citizen admitted to the United States, but who has been convicted of an aggravated felony, specifically INA-101-A43-D, INA-101-A43-M, a fraud or deceit aggravated felony, and an INA-101-A43-U conspiracy to commit either of those aggravated felonies the IJ and the BIA sustained the INA 101A43U charge, which Mr. Manier challenged on petition for review. But the Fifth Circuit didn't address it. Rather, the Fifth held that Mr. Manier's conviction matched the definition of an INA Section 101A43D offense. That section defines as an aggravated felony those offenses that are, quote, described in Section 1956 of Title 18, relating to laundering of monetary instruments, if the amount of funds exceeded $10,000, quote. The Fifth Circuit held, it appears, that even though Mr. Manier was convicted only of having conspired to violate 18 U.S.C. Section 1956, his conviction is in fact one described in Section 1956, and so satisfies the aggravated felony definition. I'd expand upon the Fifth Circuit's rationale for why a conspiracy to commit an offense matches the aggravated felony definition of that offense, if there were further analysis, but there is not. The Fifth Circuit also held that it didn't matter that the BIA didn't sustain the Section 101A43 D charge but instead found Mr. Manier removable under Section 101A43U for conspiracy to commit the aggravated felony, as one would expect the BIA to do. The 5th Circuit held that it wasn't bound by the chenerary doctrine here, which usually prevents circuits from affirming an agency on grounds that the agency did not itself use. But according to the 5th Circuit, quote, This rule is not absolute, at least in the immigration context, end quote, and at least where remand would be, quote, an idle and useless formality, end quote. Such is the case here because, according to the 5th Circuit, as it just held, the conviction satisfies the definition of a different aggravated felony, INA Section 101A43D. The court held that Mr. Manier had either failed to exhaust the remainder of his claims, or that they lacked merit. Mr. Manier, therefore, did not succeed. Succinct analysis by the Fifth Circuit, but one more not-so-great thing that I need to note. Mr. Manier also alleged that due to the Supreme Court's Pereira decision, the immigration judge lacked jurisdiction over his removal proceedings based on a statutorily non-compliant NTA that was served upon him. The Fifth Circuit dismissed that argument relying on its prior precedent that is directly on point, but in a footnote held that Niz Chavez does not change that precedent. So this is the first citation to Niz Chavez by a circuit in a published decision. It's in the jurisdictional rather than cancellation of removal context, and it summarily dismisses the argument that Neschava has changed anything about jurisdiction that hasn't already been addressed in the post-Pereira decisions. Let's see what the other circuits do, but not off to a great start. And that is Meniere v. Garland. Final case of the week, Carino v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on May 18th, 2021. And it's another Ninth Circuit case about the former derivative citizenship statute, albeit a different portion than last week's Chenu decision. These citizenship cases are certainly no picnic at Petco Park. And as with so many citizenship cases, the years are important. As I mentioned last week, quote, Derivative citizenship is determined under the law in effect at the time the critical events giving rise to eligibility occurred. Quote. Here, Mr. Carino was a minor until 1999, so like last week, the former derivative citizenship statute, INA Section 321A, is the relevant provision, because it was not replaced until 2000. Mr. Carino was born in the Philippines to unmarried Filipino parents in 1981. His father immigrated to the U.S. a year later in 1982, and the parents were married in 1985. The father naturalized to U.S. citizenship in 1988, when Mr. Carino was seven years old. During all this time, it appears that Mr. Carino and his mom were living in the Philippines, because two years later in 1990, the father filed for divorce from Hawaii. Then, in or about 1991, the father filed a visa petition to bring Mr. Carino to the US, and Mr. Carino entered Hawaii that year as a lawful permanent resident. In 1994, the father filed an application for USCIS to recognize Mr. Carino's derived US citizenship, but then he withdrew that application stating in the withdrawal that he didn't have sole legal custody of Mr. Carino, and so he believed that Mr. Carino did not in fact derive U.S. citizenship when he, the father, naturalized. And then everything just kind of sat there. And as so often occurs in these cases, Mr. Carino became an adult, and he was convicted of drug offenses. And as there are few, if any, waivers to removability for such offenses, Mr. Carino claimed in immigration court that in fact... Proceedings needed to be terminated because he was a U.S. citizen. It doesn't matter that the application was withdrawn from USCIS all those years ago. If Mr. Carino actually was a citizen, he's a citizen, regardless of whether USCIS ever formally recognized it. At the same time, realizing, as this decision infers, the trouble that their son was in, Mr. Carino's parents filed a document in Hawaii Family Court that granted physical custody over Mr. Carino, to the father, non pro tonc, Latin essentially for, quote, from the onset, end quote, retroactively to 1991. So the Hawaii Family Court document is trying to say that, in fact, the father had full legal custody over Mr. Carino since 1991, well before Mr. Carino became an adult. All of that's important because Mr. Carino clearly met all of the other requirements to derive citizenship under former INA Section 321A. For example, he was residing in the United States pursuant to a lawful admission for permanent residence as a minor after his father naturalized. But former INA Section 321A also requires that where there has occurred a, quote, legal separation, end quote, of the parents, the child only derives citizenship upon the, quote, naturalization of the parent having legal custody of the child, end quote. Not at issue in Chenu last week, but it's at issue now. According to the family court decision, quote, high probative value, end quote, the IJ terminated proceedings. But DHS appealed and the BIA reversed, going behind the state court decision, as the BIA so often tells IJs not to do in the criminal context, to rule that, quote, Hawaii State Court acting in 1991 would not have recognized his father as having sole legal custody, quote. On remand, the immigration judge granted Mr. Carino deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture, based on how the Duarte regime treats people believed to be involved with drugs. A finding DHS appealed again, and which the BIA affirmed this time. So Mr. Carino has cat deferral, and he's not going anywhere anytime soon. But this citizenship question is now before the Ninth Circuit here. And the Ninth Circuit agreed with the BIA. As an initial matter, the court held that the Separation Clause of former Section 321A applied here because Mr. Carino's parents separated in 1990 when Mr. Carino was 9 years old. That clause additionally requires that the naturalized parent have, quote, legal custody, end quote. And in the Ninth Circuit, apparently case law requires that the, quote, Phrase legal custody means sole legal custody, end quote. So the real question is, does the non Hawaii Family Court order cut it? The Ninth Circuit said no, largely because in 1990, a different divorce court expressly held that Mr. Carino's parents had joint custody. The Ninth Circuit rejected the non order because Mr. Carino's parents obtained it when he was already an adult. And because, quote, at oral argument, Mr. Carino conceded that he sought the 2013 order not to correct an error in the 1990 decree, but rather to improve Mr. Carino's position in his immigration proceedings, end quote. Not knocking counsel, though. When asked a direct question by a judge, you've got to answer it. Plus, one of the points to this whole framework, according to the 5th, 1st, and now Ninth Circuit, was to protect that non-citizen parent the theory being that a us citizen parent with a us citizen child might be able to prevent the non-citizen parent from ever seeing that child quote, "recognizing this non order for the purposes of section 321a would not serve the statute's purpose of protecting the parental rights of a non-citizen parent" End quote. so mr carino is not a citizen but he's got a convention against torture protection and all is not lost First, this may be a pretty fact-specific holding, as the Ninth Circuit seems to imply that if there was something to actually correct in the divorce decree regarding custody, rather than solely for immigration purposes, the court may have considered the non-protonque decree persuasive. Non-protonque orders appear to have effect in federal court where, quote, limited to making the record reflect what the court actually intended to do at an earlier date but which it did not sufficiently express or did not accomplish due to some error or inadvertence, quote. So there's your standard practitioners. Kind of a strange result under the old citizenship law, though. For example, had Mr. Carino's mother passed away when he was a child, or had it been the mother rather than the father who naturalized, Mr. Carino would likely be a U.S. citizen. Plus, of course, Mr. Carino could have naturalized for all of those years before he obtained the drug convictions. Unfortunate circumstances all around. Final note, the Convention Against Torture deferral grant can only follow after an immigration judge ordered Mr. Carino removed. So to get the citizenship issue before the Ninth Circuit, Mr. Carino actually had to appeal these proceedings to the BIA himself following a remand for background checks on the CAT grant. Kind of a scary thing, considering the subsequent appeal to the board could theoretically have overturned the CAT deferral grant. But it appears to have been the only reasonable way for Mr. Carino's attorneys to get this citizenship question before the Ninth Circuit, due to the strict exhaustion and jurisdiction limitations imposed by IRIRA. And that is Carino v. Garland. So there you have it you're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgregg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M-Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.